Well, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18 this morning. Uh, We are going to be in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. You'll find that on page 877 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you'd like to use that, follow along there. And look at this, Luke 18 already. So here we go. Um, I don't know if you know, it was like three sermons in Luke 16, three sermons in Luke 17. We are flying, okay? And I'm finding it exhausting. So we are going to slow down in Luke 18, okay? And just take our time, settle down. Wonderful chapter. Very encouraging stories that you're well familiar with. I trust that God will use to bless us and make us more like Jesus. This morning we come to a, a very startling and memorable parable that I think will do a good work by God's grace in our life. And we begin uh, this morning, Luke 18, and verse 1. Here now the word of God. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary." For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Our Father in heaven, we're thankful this morning for your word. We're thankful for your kindness and grace to us that we can gather here this morning as this faith community and consider it. And I trust, Father, that you would be pleased to do a work in our hearts, speak to us, and challenge us, and convict us, and mold us into the image of our elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us. We submit to you this morning. Help your word to read us well. Help it to change us. Help us to see the life that you offer us in prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. On June 26, 1986, a man named John Searing, uh, art salesman from New Jersey, fulfilled his lifetime dream. John Searing was an avid fan of the Johnny Carson show, The Tonight Show. And he had one desire, this kind of like the one thing on his bucket list, was that one day he would go on The Johnny Carson Show and introduce Johnny. That he would say, here's Johnny. That was it. That's all he wanted to accomplish in his life. And so he thought, you know, I'll write Johnny a letter, see if he'll let me come. And so he wrote him a letter and said, dear Johnny, my name is John Searing. I'm a huge fan. I would really like to just do Ed McMahon's job just once and say, here's Johnny. Well, John Searing received a letter back from Tonight Show thanking, just a form letter, thanking him for his loyalty to the show. It was a nice 8 by 10 glossy of Johnny and, you know, appreciating him. And he thought that was nice, and, but, it, you know, it wasn't really satisfactory to him. He, he didn't want a picture of Johnny. He wanted to say, here's Johnny on the Tonight Show. And so he sent another letter asking again. And then he sent another letter and then another And letter after letter after letter after letter after letter after letter after letter. Dear Johnny, John Searing here again. I would really like to just come on your show just for a minute and say, here's Johnny. And after sending over 800 letters, he finally gets a letter back from Tonight Show saying, don't send us any more letters. You could come and announce, here's Johnny. They fly him out to California, gets his own dressing room name on the door and the show's about to start. He's getting amped up that he might say, here's Johnny and Ed McMahon comes out. And what does he do? Ed McMahon introduces Johnny. He says, here's Johnny. And John Searing's saying, wait a second. I thought I was supposed to do this. He came, flew me out here to do this. And instead of introducing Johnny, 
John Searing was the first guest on The Tonight Show, and he came out and spent five minutes with Johnny Carson, interviewed him, and then they kind of said, okay, we're, I know we're in the middle of the show, but we're going to do the intro again, handed him the script, and he went over to the side, and he did the whole intro, and, and here's Johnny. You can watch it online. It's, he does a great job, by the way. And Johnny calls him over, gives him a handshake, and he says, go and write no more. Right? <laughs> uh, we, we gave you your request. You've done it now. You've bugged us for years and years. Your request is granted because of your persistence. Luke 18 and verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Keep praying. Keep praying. Over and over and over and over and over. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Keep praying, just as Jesus kept praying. And we've seen over again in Luke's Gospel, Luke records nine prayers from Jesus. Only seven of, uh, of seven of those nine are only recorded by Luke. Luke alone tells us Jesus was praying when John baptized him in Luke 3 and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. He tells us that Luke, in chapter 4, that Jesus was praying when he fasted for 40 days and was tempted. He tells us in chapter 5 that when his ministry began to grow in Capernaum, Jesus withdrew by himself to pray. In chapter 6, Luke tells us that Jesus spent all night in prayer before he chose the 12 apostles. In Luke chapter 9, before he asks Peter who he thinks that Jesus is, the Bible tells us, Luke tells us alone, that Jesus was praying before he asked that question. Eight days later, he'll go up to the mount uh, uh, to what? To pray and it's there he would be transfigured before the apostles ask him to teach them to pray. In Luke 11, we read, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, right? When we get to Luke chapter 22, we'll see that Jesus will say, Peter, I'm going to be praying for you. Later on in Luke 22, we see him praying in the garden. We should not be surprised, therefore, when we get to Luke 23 and verse 46 and the last breaths that Jesus uses in this life, he uses them to pray. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Always praying, never giving up. And here in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, he instructs us to do likewise, to always pray and not give up. Have you given up? Is there something that you have given up on? Something you have stopped praying about? Oh, God might call that to your mind. That might be very helpful for you as we consider this parable. What have you given up on? Because if you have given up, if you have stopped praying, I'll tell you, here comes Jesus and He says, let me tell you a little story why you should never stop praying. To keep praying, always pray, not to lose heart. The implication, I think, is that if Jesus is telling us a story of why we shouldn't lose heart, is that it's easy to lose heart in prayer. It's easy to grow weary in prayer. Or to put it, put it another way, it's hard to persist in prayer. What, what about prayer makes it difficult to keep going and going and going? Well, I think the obvious answer is sin. Isn't it? A lack of discipline, we don't make time to pray. Uh, maybe we're, we're, we have everything we need, there's wealth and security, and we, we don't feel like we have a need to pray. It's one of the things I love going to Ghana for, because people don't have the things that you and I have, and they have such a stronger relationship with the Lord, because they're constantly asking Him to take care of their needs. Maybe it's a lack of faith. Maybe we don't believe God's listening, that God's not answering, and the, the sick are not healed, the rebellious don't repent, the relationships are not restored, and we lose heart. Maybe it's just outright rebellion. We're just not going to do what Jesus tells us to do. 
I think one of the reasons why we fail to keep on praying is because of sin in our own life. But I think there's probably a second reason that's found in the context here. Luke chapter 17, chapter 18. It's, I think one of the reasons we might give up on praying is because of Jesus' delay in returning. You see back in Luke 17, verse 20, you remember what we considered last time. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. They, they want to know, don't they, um, when, when will the Messiah come? When will he bring his reign? When will he usher in peace and make everything good? And Jesus goes on to explain, well, okay, listen, um, he's going to come powerfully and it's going to be dramatic and, and it's going to be determine eternal destinies, but it, it's going to be a while, he says. There's going to be a delay. He says, there's going to be a time in which you wish the Son of Man would come and he will not be here. It's going to be a while. And then he teaches this parable on what we should do in the meantime. Why we wait. That is, we should pray. In fact, you look at the end of this section, jump down to Luke 18, verse 8, the second half of that verse. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He's saying, will we endure? Will Will he find us trusting him while we wait? I mean, we want him to come, we want him to bring his peace, but he's delayed. We want him to come and reign, right? And we're tempted to grow weary. We're, we're tempted to, to, to give up as we suffer the, the pain in this life and the sin in this life. And Jesus knows it's going to be hard while, while we wait. This is why he tells them in Luke 18, verse 1, you got to keep praying. You can't lose heart in this. And so I want to, with you this morning, consider this wonderful little parable. We won't spend much time in the parable itself, but we're going to spend most of our time in the explanation that Jesus gives. What I appreciate, a lot of times Jesus doesn't explain his parables. So I praise the Lord. We not only get an introduction, verse one, you get this explanation. It's very helpful for us. And I trust it will bless us this morning. So consider, first of all, the parable of the persistent widow. There are two characters. The first we might call a terrible judge. We meet him in verse two. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, there seems to me that there are two things you want in a judge and the two things you want this man lacks, right? Uh, He doesn't fear God and he doesn't like people. And he even knows it. Look down in verse four. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, he had a little conversation with himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. It doesn't bother him at all, evidently. He knows who he is. And if you, if you don't fear God, then you think, well, listen, you don't have any accountability over you. You don't, you don't have anybody who's going to judge you. And so this judge thinks there's, there's no authority over him. He has no fear of God. Therefore, he has no incentive to be just. You, we need judges that, that understand that they are not the ultimate authority. In fact, in a time of, of Israel's rebellion under King Ahab, the, the judges were incredibly corrupt and, and terrible, terrible people. And Ahab dies and his son rises to reign, a godly man named King Jehoshaphat. And, and he said, he gathered the judges and he said to them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord. Who is with you whenever you give a verdict? Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you and judge carefully. Well, this man doesn't care about any of that. And to make matters worse, he doesn't like people. You're suffering, he doesn't care. You've been abused, he doesn't care. Someone's wronged you, he doesn't care. Which means, of course, if you're weak and vulnerable and you suffer injustice, you have little hope with this man, like this widow, as we see in verse 3. We might call her a tenacious widow. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. She has this adversary, someone who's opposing her. We're not sure what it is, and she wants justice. Maybe she's been, uh, you know, swindled out of some money. Maybe she's been abused. Maybe she's been robbed or taken advantage of, and she wants justice. The problem is, is that you got a bad judge and you got a helpless widow with, you know, very little resources to compel the judge to give justice. You think, you know, if you have a bad judge, how do you get him to give you justice? Well, one way, you might try to bribe him, I guess, but she has no wealth to do anything like that. You might try to threaten him, right? Hold something over him, but she has no power or influence. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have influence, but she's got, she's got time, evidently, because the one thing she can do is to beg him, which she did, 
over and over and over and over again, as you see in verse 4. For while he refused, he, but, uh, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because his widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You see this tireless plea. She ignored at first. This guy has no intent on ruling on her behalf, just hoping she would leave him alone. And she just comes pleading with him over and over again. He even says there, you see that verse 5, she's beating me down. That's actually a boxing term, right? It's like to get a black eye. She's just beating this judge up with her constant requests. And I don't know, it's easy for me to imagine what this looks like. Maybe it is for you that judge gets up going off to work this morning. And who's out there on the curb waiting for him? His little old widow. Good morning, judge. Um, I'd like to talk to you about my case, please. And we goes to the market and doing a little shopping. Hey, judge, happy good to see you. Um, you know, I was thinking about my case. I'd really like justice. What do you think about that? And on his way home, she says, oh, judge, well, it's, it's good to see you. How about we walk together and maybe we could talk about my case and over and over. I like justice, she says. I would like ju- pleading with him on the street in front of his colleagues, right? Calling him at home over and over and over and over and over again and just beating him down. It's like a granny with boxing gloves, just smacking him in the nose over and over again, right? Give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. Finally, the judge realizes it would cost him less to give in than to put up with this persistent pleading. Right? You know who knows that, who has mastered this strategy well? Children. Right? Don't you think? Right? Children have no power. They got no money. But they can be persistent. Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I? Right? You ever, you ever see that? You ever see a kid in the grocery store? Right? I want the fudgesicle. Right? Can I, mom? Can I, mom? Can I, mom? Right? One pastor says it's like a hostage negotiation. Right? Because the kid learns there's an audience. Right? And uh, there are people watching this situation. And somehow they, they realize, you know, can I have the candy bar? No, you can't. Well, they say, okay, well, if I start screaming, maybe if I throw my body on the ground and start flailing, everybody will think you're a terrible parent. Or maybe you're beating me or somehow. Right? And so I'll just do that a little bit. And finally, the parent says, fine, here, have the candy bar. And then, of course, the kid just, like a light switch, everything's better, right? This is why you never negotiate with hostage takers, right? Right? Because they'll learn it works, right? This is, this is what she's doing, persistence. She's a nuisance. She's wearing him down. Give me justice. Give me justice. And he does, not because it's right, but to get rid of her. Like, Johnny, stop writing me letters, right? This is the point. The point is Jesus is telling us. See that? Verse 1. He tells us the point already. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. Keep praying. Persist in prayer. And to help us, he places this shocking little, I think, memorable story of this little old widow wearing down this mean old judge. Now, please understand, we are the widow. Right? We're weak. We're powerless. We're often suffering, and often our only hope, our only source of hope, is the judge. And so we keep on asking, and we keep on seeking, and we keep on knocking on heaven's door. We keep on praying and not lose heart. This is Christ's call to a persistent prayer. The call to persistent prayer, as you see in verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. It's a call that we might persist in prayer. The question, of course, that is raised is, what, are we just to keep bugging God? Wear God out with our repeated requests, punching God over and over. Can I? Can I? Can I? Right? And God's saying, I don't want to give this to you, but I can't handle your request anymore. Here you go. No. God is nothing like this judge. In fact, we've already seen in Luke chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus says, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. He wants to give to us. It pleases us, pleases Him to give to us. So we may be like the widow, but God is nothing like the judge. 
the, the argument is, if this unrighteous judge will give in to her plea, how much more willing is our good judge and our wise judge and our gracious judge? In fact, Jesus uses this kind of logic over and over again. He's, all, he's already done it about prayer. If you remember Luke 11, that incredible teaching on prayer. And Jesus says, listen, dads, when your son asks for a loaf of bread, do you give him a scorpion? When he asks for a fish, do you give him a snake? Of course you don't. You give him good gifts. And he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to you? And so what Jesus is teaching us, if this wicked judge will listen, how much more will a judge who loves you? In fact, the contrast between this judge and God, I think, is meant to encourage our persistent prayers and to help us never to lose heart. And so what I simply want to do is I want to consider the difference between this judge and God, right? The unrighteous judge and the righteous judge. And think about, in light of that difference, how might this impact our persistent prayer? I think the first impact is that it would lead us to pleading prayers. Pleading prayers because we trust God's justice. Note verse 7 again. And will not God give justice to his elect? Unlike the judge in the story, God delights in justice. Beautiful um, scripture read for us from Malachi this just a little while ago, talks about how God lights, delights to give justice. God gives justice. I like Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. He's a God of justice. This is important for us because we live in a world in which quite often it seems like injustice is winning. The persecution of the church, the corruption in politics, the slander in relationships. And it looks like injustice is winning. And I tell you, in those cases, we can always pray to a perfectly just judge. We can ask for justice. In fact, verse 7, give justice, literally give vindication. It's okay to ask God to do what is right. It's okay to ask God to plead to God for justice, to plead to God to vindicate His suffering people. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will you judge? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Plead the perfected martyrs in heaven. Give us justice, they say. In fact, I believe to pray for justice is in some way to pray for the kingdom of God. We are taught to pray, your kingdom come. His kingdom is a kingdom of perfect justice. And so we ask God to bring justice upon this earth. We're asking for God to to rule. We're to to plead with Him. No, this is not often, when we pray for this, it's not often casual prayers or formal prayers. Look how he explains it, verse 7. He says, and will God not give justice to his elect who do what? Who cry to him day and night. Deeply felt pleas over and over again. We should have pleading prayers. Crying out to him. And secondly, we should have confident prayers. Because we trust God's love. Confident prayers. Here's a judge who loved no one but himself. Right? He, He couldn't care less about this anonymous widow. She was nothing to him. She was nothing to him. Please understand, we are no stranger to God. I want you to note how Jesus describes us there once again in verse 7 when it says, And will God not give justice to his elect? You, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are God's elect. God has chosen you and so when we come to him god is not saying to us okay now who are you again no please understand that that when we pray to him we we come to him thinking jesus is inviting us to think this i'm coming to the one who has chosen me 
I think that's an incredible incentive in prayer. If I'm chosen by God, I have certainty. I have the certainty that he wants to be good to me. I have the certainty that he wants to answer me. He has chosen me. It means his favor has been set upon us without condition, freely given to us. The Bible says he chose us before we ever chose him or we ever could chose him because Ephesians 1 verse 4 says he chose us before the foundation of the world. And my friends, I think there's incredible security and comfort that my belonging to God is not dependent upon my ability to hold on to Him in faith, but is dependent upon His ability to continue to love me with a love He set upon me before this world ever began. I love God. I trust God. Because he has chosen me. Now I understand some struggle with this interpretation. I understand that some are uncomfortable. Not everyone agrees here that this is what it means to be God's elect. And that's okay. Okay? Some, for some reason we get way too emotional when we deal with these kind of difficult theological principles And this is not something for us to get upset about or divide on, but I do want you to think about it. Because some people think, okay, God chose me because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that I would put my faith in him. And then because he see I put my faith in him, he came and chose me. And I just, I I don't see that taught anywhere in scripture, my friends. And, and, And if you think that he chooses you in response to your faith, then you lose all the security that he means to give you when he calls you his elect. Because he's just choosing you because you first chose him, so it's all on you. The fact that God calls me his elect has such powerful security in my own life. If he chose me according to his sovereignty, which I believe he did, then I could pray to him in great confidence. I'm coming to the one who loved me and cared for me before I ever knew him, before I was ever created. I can say, Father, listen to my prayer because you have chosen me. I belong to you. You've promised good for me before creation. And I think this is why, listen, there's a reason. Jesus could have described this a hundred different ways in verse 7. And for some reason, when he wants to encourage persisting prayer, he says, I want to remind you, God has chosen you. God has elected you. And I'll tell you, that, that makes me want to pray boldly. I don't want to pray timidly. I want to pray with confidence before an electing and loving father. I want to have the confidence that Abraham had, who was a pagan man not seeking after God at all, and God chose him. And you see how Abraham prayed and even argued with God over the the welfare of, of Sodom. Or I want to pray like Moses prayed. A man who married into a pagan family, just keeping sheep out in the wilderness. And one day God chooses him, appears to him. And you see how Moses prays, pleading with God, wrestling with God in prayer over and over and over again for the welfare of Israel. See, prayer is not supposed to be passive. It's not often calm. This is why you often need to pray by yourself, because you need to get loud sometimes and Pour out your heart to God and intensely and repeatedly and earnestly present our request to a God who loves us. We can pray confidently, my brothers and sisters. But when we pray confidently, we also pray submissively. We need to keep those intentions. Third, consider that we should have submissive prayers, trusting God's wisdom. When we pray with confidence, as Jesus has taught us, I think he's teaching us here, very clearly taught us in Luke 11. Remember remember the man who went to his neighbor in the middle of the night, give me some bread, I have a guest. And Jesus says he's not going to give him bread because he likes his neighbor, but because of his impudence, remember that? His importunity, his his, um, irreverent pleading, right? So we have that kind of prayer. But we also have submission. So listen, we don't, we don't go to God and said, you know, I pray for this. We don't think about prayers this way. Okay, I asked God and I told God all the reasons why he should do this. I told him why it was a good idea. 
and, and he didn't give it to me, therefore prayer's not working. Okay? It's not working. He's not listening, right? The line's busy. I don't know what's happening. No, God has the right to say no. Okay? That's one of the prerogatives of being God. Okay? You get to say no. And sometimes God says no. And we need to submit to that. God, the judge, decides our case and we submit to his decision because it's always the best decision. There's always part of us, even when we confidently wrestle with God in prayer, there's always part of us that say, okay, but not my will, but your will be done. And it's even beyond that, I think, because we not, don't simply want to submit our wills to God. My friends, what we need to do when we pray is we need to pray to God and plead with God and tell God why we think He ought to do this and why it would be glorify Him and be for our gain. And yet we need to have the understanding and often say to God, but Father, if you decide not to give me what I want, then I want what you want to give me. I'd rather you not answer this prayer if you don't want to answer this prayer, I want what you want. We submit our hearts to God. Whatever you decide, that's what I want. That's hard to do. But there are times when we're really desperate for something. Right? But this is what the Bible teaches us to submit ourselves to God. We can pray like that because our perfect judge, our electing father, knows what is best for us. He is wise. A four-year-old can't possibly understand why a parent says no to this and yes to that. They just can't get it. But they, they, they could trust. They could submit. Right? And, and I think there's a balance here. I mentioned that we have to keep this intention. There's a balance between confident prayer and submissive prayer. There's a balance between wrestling with God in prayer and resting with God in prayer. And if we overstress our confidence in prayer, we will become angry when God does not answer our prayers. But if we overstress our submission in prayer, we will become passive, and He wants us to cry out to Him day and night. In fact, we overstress either one, we'll stop praying. But Jesus says, no, we're to pray, pray confidently and pray submissively, and part of submitting, you're not going to want to hear this, but it's true, so here you go. Part of submitting is that you have to be patient. Number four, We should have patient prayers, trusting God's timing. Look what Jesus says at the end of verse 7. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now please don't misread that. Because it does not say he will do it immediately. The word is not immediately But the word is, what is it? Speedily, swiftly, quickly. In other words, when God decides the answer, it will come quick. But the whole point of the whole parable is not I pray and get the answer immediately. The point of the parable is I pray and pray and pray and pray. Not day and night, over and over again, and I don't lose heart. And one day, God will answer that. And when he answers that, he will answer it uh, quickly. He will answer it swiftly. He's not like the unjust judge. He's not putting this off because he doesn't want to be bothered. His delay is not a denial. He's just going to do it in his time. And sometimes his time seems long to us. But it's not long to him, by the way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. And I, I, would, I would challenge you, it will not, his delay will not seem long to you when you walk into eternity and you get a perspective, his perspective, what time truly is. And your, your understanding reflects reality. And so we have to pray. And we wait. And we pray with patience. And we trust God's timing. And we trust that he has his reasons. I, I think, and don't you believe this, that there, there are, and when we pray and pray and pray, and God delays and delays and delays, there are nuances and beauties in God's schedule that you and I can't even begin to comprehend as to, I mean, if we sat down and thought, okay, what is God trying to do in delaying? And we spent a week trying to think that. I don't think we would often come up with the majesty and the beauty of what God is trying to accomplish in his delay. And, and, and so we wait on him. And, and one thing he might be doing, he might be wanting to change us. And he says, yeah, I want to give that to you, but you're not quite ready for it. 
We, 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 uh, in, in our house, we like chainsaws. You guys like chainsaws? Yeah, yeah it's okay. Yeah, I got one. Yeah. Finally. I knew I'd get a response from you today. All right, okay. So we, we live in a forest. We, 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 you know, we like to cut down dead trees and chop up firewood. It's a huge celebration, and there's, we have a little chance that happened when Daddy splits a big one, and, you know, it's just a, it's a lot of fun, right? And, and so we, we, we enjoy doing that as a family. And what happened if, you know, this week my... Uh, I say, my, my eight-year-old son calls me up and says, hey, Dad, I found a dead tree out back. Can I go grab the chainsaw and take it down? And, uh, <laughs> no, see, I would say no, not yay. Um, I would say, you know, I appreciate the instinct, but, you know, not now, son. And, and he might say, well, when? I'd say, well, I don't know, six years, okay? Um, and it's not that I'm against taking down dead trees, and it's not that I'm against firewood. I'm against dismemberment, Okay. okay? <laughs> I'm against premature death and ER visits, okay? Um, the, the, and, and God, I think, is, is, is gonna, is often says to us, okay, I, I hear you, and I, I love hearing you, you cry out to me. And um, listen, one day, like I will my son, I'll, I'll pull my son and say, hey, buddy, let's go take down a tree. Do you want to run the chainsaw? You know, that day's coming, but it's not right now. And so we wait on God. I, I, in fact, I think there's something, I think, I think there might be something in persistent prayer that's good for us. You think that might be the case? You think there might be some unique glory in which God might receive if we prayed for the same thing day after day for years, maybe even decades? I think there might be. We pray persistently. Ole Hallersby, a a Norwegian Christian, was written a book on prayer. He's helped me with this idea. He once worked in the mining industry in Norway. He likens praying to how they created shafts for the mines out there in his native country. So there are two steps in creating a mine. The first step is a long period, he says, uh, quote, when, you, when the deep holes are being bored with great effort into the hard rock. He says yeah, it takes a lot of skill to do this. You have to know the strategic spots, and it takes patience and steadiness. You dig in the bore in this hole and take a long, long time. He says, but, but once the hole is made in the rock, you move on to the second phase. And you drop the shot down the hole with a long fuse. He says, to fire the shot is not only easy, but also very interesting. Right? One sees results as pieces fly in every de- uh, direction. His point is that you know, the boring the hole takes work and takes patience and strength of character. Does anybody can light a fuse? You light a fuse and just drop it, it's not going to do anything, he says. You see, the, the fuse lighting only happens after the long, hard work of the hole boring. And if we trust in God's timing, through patient, persistent prayer, it's kind of like this hole boring that God one day will let us see the fruit. In fact, this whole passage, as I think about it, reminds me of of a passage from Isaiah. Maybe it reminds you of that same passage. It's pretty well known of of these people praying to God from Isaiah 62 for the justice in Jerusalem. Isaiah 62 verse 6 says, On your walls I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. You see what the prophet is saying is we're going to cry out to God and we're going to remind God of his promises for this city. And in fact, we're going to make sure that one of us, at least one of us, is always pleading with God for this. Right? And there'll be never a time in which God is not listening to at least one asking for this request. He says, we will give God no rest. We will keep praying and praying and praying until he gives what we are asking for. We should do likewise. We should plead with confidence and submission and patience, knowing that we're not bugging God until He finally relents. Nor are we trying to give Him something, get, get Him to give us something that He doesn't want to. Rather, we're persisting, knowing that He's just, and that He's loving, and that He's wise, 
and that God will answer according to his time. So will you pray? Will you pray for your daily needs? Will you pray for peace and stress and victory over temptation and the salvation of the lost and the healing of relationships and the courage to talk about Jesus? Will you pray persistently? I think routine is very helpful. I would encourage you to pray first thing in the morning. You get up, maybe you get a coffee and a shower, and then you go and be alone with God when you rise. And I think it would be helpful for you. you. last thing you do is you lay your head on the pillows, just talk to God quietly. Maybe you give Him praise for the day. Often I confess sin at night. I put my head on the pillow and talk to God about areas where I wish I was, was more Christ-like. It's helpful for us to read God's Word and let Him start the conversation. We see who God is and what He's done, and then we respond to Him. Maybe even these sermons. I mean, you all come and spend an hour listening to me. Maybe, maybe these sermons would fuel your prayer life. Maybe you would, even this afternoon, grab your, grab your family, grab your spouse. You go for a walk and talk about the message and how it impacts you. And, and maybe you could pray about it as you walk and ask God to begin to change you. Maybe you pray with other Christians, that you would save time in your community group, that praying is not just something you add on to it, but it's an important part of living in community together. And you pray with one another in your discipleship relationships. We're going to pray during our Sunday morning service. We pray, of course, often uh, throughout the service, but especially after the scriptures read by one of your pastors, one of your elders. And then we have a, a pastoral prayer where we respond to what God has said in the word by praising him and confessing sin and praying for our needs and the needs of those we love. Right? We're gonna, please understand, I, I've shared this with you. I understand what we do here on Sunday morning. This is a prayer service. It's not the only thing we do, but we pray during this time. And so if the pastoral prayer is five, ten minutes long, that's okay for me. It should be okay with you. We're gathering together to pray. We ought to pray for our neighbors and our coworkers. You know, a, a question that I've never heard someone get offended by is, how can I pray for you? Even atheists will say, yeah, you could pray for me. We should, we should pray for the persecuted church. It's not the whole context of this uh, passage here. A, a prayer for justice. You know, right now there's 200 million Christians living in this world under threats, discrimination, hardship, imprisonment. One pastor writes that house churches in China are under government observation. Christians in Sudan face genocidal violence from militant Muslims. Citizens in Saudi Arabia are not allowed to convert to faith in Jesus Christ. Pastors in Vietnam meet in secret to receive their theological training. Militant Buddhists in Sri Lanka burn down churches. Christians in Eritrea are murdered and jailed in record numbers. Just today there are three children fighting for their life in a hospital in Indonesia because their church was bombed. One boy is named Alvaro. He's four years old. He just had his 17th surgery a couple of weeks ago, and it's just not the surgeries that he's endured. His parents are more concerned of the emotional trauma. He's now disfigured in his face, and this boy who was once an outgoing, kind of just knows everyone boy, now hides himself from others. Will you pray? Will you pray? Please understand, I'm not trying to fill you with guilt this morning. I think guilt, by the way, is a terrible motivator. If you ever feel guilty after one of my sermons, that is usually not my intent. Sometimes I want you to feel guilty, but most of the times I don't. You know, um, I don't want you walking out of here thinking, man, I, I, I am terrible. What's wrong with me? Why don't I pray? That's not what I want. You know, if you don't, if you don't pray persistently, um, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You don't have to pray persistently to be a Christian. I just think it's an incredible privilege. You ever think about the privilege of prayer? I mean, it's the creator of the universe you're talking to, and he's listening to you, or you have his ear. I mean, that, why does that shock us? It doesn't shock me. It should. I mean, imagine if you couldn't pray anymore. Like, you just he shut the door. No more prayers. No more access. And someone you comes to you, and please, man, I have this great need, and, and, they, and they, they present this need to you, and you say, well, you know, uh, good luck with that. You know, cross your fingers, hope that gets better. Or, or you say, okay, listen, I, I know the creator of heaven and earth. He chose me. And um, I, he listened to me. I'm going to go talk to him about that need. In fact, do you want to 
You could join me. We could talk to him together about that. That's just amazing, isn't it? That, that God listens to you. Like you, anytime you want, day or night, you don't need to call a secretary or get on his calendar. You just, you just go to him. And, and it's a privilege. You don't have to. I mean, there are very few have-tos in the New Testament. There's a lot of get-tos, right? Or as Francis Chan puts it, there's a lot of stupid if-you-don'ts. I mean, you don't want to serve, okay. You, you, you don't want to give, okay. You don't want to help others, okay. You don't want to pray persistently, okay. I just want you to know that's really, 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 really dumb. Right? It is incredible honor and privilege. And I think sometimes we, we don't grow in our faith and we're not advancing in our faith. And we're, we're like, it's just ridiculous. We're like a, a 50-year-old man and sitting in the kiddie pool with water wings on. And God is saying, come on, man, let me teach you what this life is supposed to be like. Let me show you how to swim. It's so much more enjoyable in the deep end. Come on, let's live. And he's inviting us to this incredible privilege. The creator of heaven and earth says, pray to me and I will listen to you. Will you pray? I think that's an important question. In fact, I think it's a question Jesus wants to know the answer to, for he ends this passage at the end of verse 8, saying, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Many question whether Jesus is really returning. That's not his question. His question is not if I'm coming back, but will, will we be ready when he comes back? Right? Not, not will he do what he promised in Luke 17, but will we trust him to do it and obey him in Luke 18? Will he find faith on the earth, he says. The answer, of course, is yes, he will. He already told us he will in Luke 13 because he said the kingdom of God is like a small little mustard seed that's planted and it grows into this massive tree and it reaches all the nations. There will be people. He will find faith on the earth. The question, I think, for us is will he find it in us? Will you find faith here in Hamilton Baptist Church? The evidence of faith, evidently, in Jesus' linking this to this story is persevering prayer. It's, it's only if we have, we'll only persevere in prayer if we have faith in his promises. In fact, I, I think, you know, we, we surveyed all the advantages we have over this poor widow. You know, she has one advantage we don't have. She has something on us. You know what it is? She can see the judge. She walked right up to him. In order for us to talk to the judge, what do we need? We need faith. Augustine said, when faith fails, prayer dies. So Jesus asks, when he returns, will he find Hamilton Baptist Church? A people praying consistently. Will he find faith here? When we give up on prayer... We are, in a sense, saying we don't believe God hears us. In fact, when we don't pray, I think we are saying that God is less righteous than the judge in this story. Even this unrighteous judge will answer these requests. Even he will answer prayers. And I I just want to remind you as we end our time this morning that God, that Jesus is far better than this judge. In fact, he's, he's better than this widow, too. She evidently suffered some unsaid justice, didn't she? But she did not suffer to the point of shedding blood. She wasn't wrongly arrested or found guilty in a bogus trial during the darkness of the night. She wasn't stripped naked. She wasn't beaten. She wasn't mocked. She wasn't abandoned. She certainly was not nailed to a Roman cross to die. This widow never experienced God's wrath for the sins when which she had not committed, just like Jesus did. He's not only better than the judge, he's better than the widow. He experienced an injustice, a suffering far greater than anyone ever has, as he pays not for his sin, but for my sin. In fact, I don't know if you saw, the widow has an unnamed adversary who brought this suffering on her. Jesus has an adversary too, who brought suffering on him. His name is Stephen. It's me. It's you. We were his adversary, were we not? And out of his great and abounding and unimaginable love, we who brought suffering upon him extends us grace and mercy and amazing privilege, even in the midst of his suffering. In fact, when Jesus suffered, do you know know what he did? Why he was suffering for us? 
He prayed. And he did not lose heart. He prayed confidently, trusting God's love. For he said, shall I say, save me from this hour? No, for this very hour I have come. Father, glorify yourself, he prayed. He prayed submissively, trusting God's wisdom. As he prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed patiently, trusting God's timing. For scripture says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he prayed pleadingly, trusting God's justice. He prayed for justice on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. It is now just for God to forgive us. Right? Because Jesus has made that payment. Do you know that forgiveness? Do you know the forgiveness that Christ would offer you right now if you would simply place your faith in Him and bow your knee to Him in submission saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead and I submit my life to you. He would shower you with grace and mercy and forgiveness forever. We have a good judge who has sent a good Savior. We have His forgiveness and we also have His ear. May we be found praying faithfully. Our Father in heaven, we, we want to be people of faith when the Son of Man returns. Help us. I continue to be burdened in my own heart for myself and for this church that we would become people desperate for you and dependent upon you in prayer. Help us to see the great privilege and honor it is that you invite us. Help this little story to be ingrained in our hearts that we would not forget it. And help our friend here who does not know Christ as her Savior or his Lord, that she or he would receive the forgiveness that that you, God, would offer them even now. Change us, Father. Into the image of your Son, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.